Claude Debussy's only opera, Pelleas et Melisande, is often considered mysterious and atypical, yet Richard Seaver music director James Conlon considers it one of his favorites. Listen to Maestro Conlon as he explores the ways in which this opera manages to entrance audiences in this pre-recorded pre-talk. Tickets for Pelleas et Melisande are available now at laopera.org. I'm going to be talking about Pelleas and Melisande, Debussy's only opera, in case you don't know it. And if you don't know it, you're in a majority. Now, it is an opera that has always posed certain problems to opera lovers, and I will show you why very shortly. Now, is it really a problem? No. For those of us who love it, the piece is so magnificently beautiful. I consider it certainly one of my Desert Island pieces and one of the five or six greatest singular works, not just in the operatic repertory, but in any repertory. And so I offer it to you. So for people who love Pelleas and Melisande and for conductors who have the privilege, the great luck to conduct it from time to time, it becomes one of the great obsessive works. That's to say, while you're working on it, while you're studying it, while you're rehearsing it, while you're performing it, you really can't think about anything else. In fact, I consider it addictive. Peleas and Melisande, there's only one. Now, I want you to become obsessed. I want you to become addicted. And I promise you, there is no harm from this addiction. There is only an enriching experience that is a mysterious experience and never ends. Now, why does it not end? Because part of the story, part of the music, is all about mystery. And so you read it, hear it, listen to it, watch it, like a novel trying to figure out the characters, trying to figure out... The storyline is simple, you'll get it, but trying to figure out what does it mean and what are all those feelings... There is no way that you ever come to the bottom of that well. You're always going to be going down there. And so I started when I was 18, and I'm still at it at my age. Claude Debussy is, from my mind, perhaps the greatest French composer, certainly of his period, and certainly in his way, the most influential. It took him a long time to find an operatic subject that he actually saw through to the end. And so consequently, he only finished one opera. He's like Beethoven, who only wrote Fidelio. He worked on it for a very long time, perfecting it, changing it, searching for more, but he could only write one. He had found, and it took him a long time to find, the perfect work for him to set to music. And it was, by no surprise, called Peleas and Melisande, by the Belgian writer, poet, Maurice Maeterlinck. Now, by an incredible coincidence, Debussy was born on August the 22nd, 1862. Maurice uh, Maeterlinck was born on August the 29th, 1862. They were born one week apart. Debussy in a suburb of Paris, Maeterlinck in the Belgian city of Ghent, and they didn't know each other. They had no contact with each other until after Debussy read the play, decided that was the play he wanted to turn into an opera, and then he went to ask permission. Now, I don't know what would have happened if Maeterlinck had refused it because he had already started writing the music. But Maeterlinck said, fine. And so he took the play 
and literally wrote an opera to the text. He made some cuts. It's a little shorter than the play. Uh, but that may seem like a perfectly normal thing to do. But it wasn't a perfectly normal thing to do at the time. In fact, for centuries, there were so-called poets or librettists whose job it was to make right librettos for composers and turn them into operas. But it was basically Debussy who took the idea to take a text and write exactly to that text. Now, soon afterwards, Richard Strauss, always on top of everything, realized that you could do that. He took Oscar Wilde's text of Zalome and wrote an opera. And then soon after that, Alexander Zemlinsky found another work of Oscar Wilde, A Florentine Tragedy, and he did the same thing. And then Alban Berg took Wozzeck by Büchner, and he did the same thing. So no big deal now, but it was a big deal when Debussy very quietly did it. And we have to remember that Debussy was not recognized yet as the great composer we now know he was. He was still uh, struggling like most composers were at the time. So you get this symbolist poet, playwright, and essay writer who was Belgian. He was born, wrote in French. He was also a Nobel Prize winner in literature in 1911. He wrote a study of the life of bees. He was also a a pseudoscientist. And he was most of all a mystic, a real one. And so he brings all of that into this great work. And then 1893 to 1895, most of the composing went, took place, but he still kept fiddling with it, changing it, revising it, and he couldn't get anybody to produce it. And so it didn't get produced until its premiere was in Paris at the Opera Comique, though there's nothing funny about Pelleas and Merizon, on April the 30th, 1902, a full decade. Let's say it took a decade from birth to, to being able to be performed in the Opera House. Now, what makes Pelleas so different? Uh, and why do audiences not know if they like it? I mean, opera audiences. Because I think that this is an opera. I should stop saying that. It's not an opera. It is a piece of musical theater which has a great appeal to people who also love piano music by Debussy, songs by Debussy, chamber music by Debussy, and most of all, the orchestral works. The tradition of opera, as we know, has been said, opera was born in Italy, migrated to France, to Germany, to what is now Austria. It was all about beautiful singing, bel canto, you've heard the term. Long melodies, high notes, flexibility, it's called coloratura. It's all about the beauty of the voice, and who sings high notes very well is considered already a treasure in the opera house. Now, that's the first point. Debussy had no interest in writing in that style. He wanted to write a work where the people sang the language the way they spoke it. In other words, French is going to be set in his music in a way that does not elongate notes. There are no concessions to vocalism. It's all about the text. So the opera, born in Italy and described by Carolyn Abate and Roger Parker in their marvelous history of opera, Before they summed it up at the end, they said, that's it, that's opera. Just a lot of people in costumes falling in love and dying. Now there's another famous quote, George Bernard Shaw, which I will paraphrase. He says, an Italian opera 
is the soprano wants to make love to the tenor, the tenor wants to make love to the soprano, and the baritone doesn't want to let them. That's a formula, but it's a formula that was practiced over and over and over again. And if there was a low male voice, a bass, uh, he was often an older man, a king, a wicked man, could be a judge, a czar, a pope. But the lovers were the soprano and the tenor. Now, we're going to see how, on the one hand, Debussy was revolutionary and changing everything. At the same time, he's going to start with that basic formula because it's going to be about a young man and a young woman who fall in love. And there's going to be a baritone who's in the way. More on that coming up. I should add at this point, one could talk about all the aspects of Peleos and Melisande, and it would take, you'd have to go on retreat at least for a weekend or maybe three or four days. So I'm not going to attempt to do any of that right now in this podcast. I'm going to be emphasizing one or two aspects uh, just to make a point. Why this opera is an atypical opera and why it is that some audience members say, well, wait a minute, there were no arias, there were no high notes, uh, there were no duets. I feel a little bit strange. I come here and that's what I expect. Well, this is a very different experience, and it's, a, it's almost like a mystical experience. So now you know Claire de Lune. Listen to this, which is just a small excerpt from the end of the opera, the last phrase of the opera, and you'll get a picture of the aesthetic. Mesmerizing. Now, that kind of atmosphere, that kind of spirit. Let's listen to another, just a small moment from La Mer, which, of course, is one of Debussy's great pieces for orchestra. You get the same kind of color, so that if you know La Mer, you'll find yourself in familiar waters. Can I say that? This is the Debussy we are familiar with. And this is what you can expect from the orchestra when you come to hear Peleas and Melisande. Here's another piece you know very well. Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. A piece that caused a scandal when it was premiered. 
The critics dismissed it, and it proceeded to become a staple of every concert repertory orchestra all over the world. This beautiful, it's a new color. That's what shocked at the time. This is the color of the orchestra of Pelias and Melisande. This is what you can expect. So you may not get your high notes, but you're going to get a lot of this gorgeous music. And here, another example of the many preludes for piano. Here's a very beautiful one. And here's another one. This is called La Cathédrale Engloutie, the engulfed or submerged cathedral. Debussy wanted the form to come out of the feeling or spirit of a piece. He thought, for instance, that the classical symphony was obsolete. So he never wrote a symphony. He, every orchestra piece he wrote started with an idea, an aesthetic, a feeling, uh, a color. And he worked from the feeling outward, and that made the form. Well, he did the same thing with this opera. The only difference being is that Pelleas and Melisande was a play in five acts. Why in five acts? Because every play in French literature over 300 years was in five acts. And so is the opera. That's the only form, however, it has. The music is written continuously. It never stops. And that is, of course, part of the Wagnerian revolution. Let's ask ourselves, what are the things that are different about Peleus and Melisande? And where did they come from? Did they come from Wagner? Were they... Debussy's own ideas, whether other influences. Well, one of the things is that there should be no long-held notes. Debussy at one point wrote an article, Why I Wrote Peleas. I'm going to quote from it because I think it's interesting. The drama of Peleas, which, despite its atmosphere of dreams, contains much more humanity than so-called real-life documents. It seemed to suit my intention admirably. It has an evocative language whose sensitivity could find its extension in music and in orchestral setting. You see, that's important. He speaks right away of the importance of the orchestra. Now, what came with that? Well, Debussy wrote in 1901, that's a year before the premiere, music has a rhythm whose secret force shapes the development. The impulses of the soul, however, have quite a different rhythm, more instinctively general and controlled by many events. From the incompatibility of these two rhythms, a perpetual conflict arises. The two do not move at the same speed. Either the music gets out of breath by chasing after the character, or the character sits on a note to allow the music to catch up with it. 
So what is Debussy saying? He's saying that when you artificially place a form on the text, you are setting up a conflict where either the text means less or the form is compromised. So what he's saying is you can't really put these two things together. And interestingly enough, Arnold Schoenberg expressed the same idea when he wrote that, and I'm paraphrasing, very, very good poetry doesn't set itself so well to good songwriting, whereas weaker poetry seems to make better songs. And he gives examples. Now, why would that be? In his opinion, because the strength of great poetry has a weight, a construction, a power that can easily overwhelm the music. What makes a logical poetic phrase has its own laws. What makes a logical musical phrase has its own laws, and they are mostly in conflict with one another. Schoenberg's idea was weaker poetry makes that easier because you can superimpose the musical laws on the poetic laws. Debussy has recognized this same conflict, and he is going to walk a fine line, but mostly on the side of the text. But his genius is in setting the text in such a way that it seems to be the natural way to speak, but he surrounds it with quote-unquote music, which is emanating from the orchestra, which tells a story, tells a different story, puts another emphasis on what the words that are being used are, asks us questions, opens up a universe, shows us darkness and light, all of that around the text. Now, he didn't like long-held notes, because why? Well, we don't speak that way. I'm not going to say a word and hold it like that. So that for him, that's unnatural. So he doesn't like Italian arias where somebody holds a long note. It should always be approximately the length of the spoken word. He rarely allows two characters to sing together, sing at the same time, or overlap. Now, you'll have two characters. They'll be in a scene with each other, but one will sing or speak, and then the other one will sing or speak. Rarely do they overlap, and only when it means something, when Peleos and Melisande are expressing passionately their love for each other, but you have to wait to act four for that to happen. This is a Wagnerian concept. Wagner wrote, although he didn't always practice what he wrote, He tended to write, one character sings, the other one sings back to that character. And even something that's a duet is rare, especially in the later operas, that both are singing at the same time. So that he did take from Wagner. Now, he took another idea from Wagner, who wrote, he didn't like the chorus singing too much because it didn't make sense with his dramas. Now, he wrote that, but then, of course, he wrote some absolutely great operas full of choruses, especially the early ones. He developed that idea as time went on, but the Flying Dutchman has great choruses. Tannhauser has the famous Pilgrim's Chorus. Uh, Lohengrin has choral music from beginning to end. Meistersinger has great choral moments. Parsifal has a little bit less. The Ring, zero. Until the end of The Ring, the last part, Dico de Demerung has one scene that's a chorus scene. So he was ambitious about the use of the chorus. So Wagner, when the form made sense, when the dramatic form made sense, he'd use a chorus, and when it didn't, he would speak against it. Now, Debussy didn't want the chorus really participating, and so there is only one brief excerpt where we hear a chorus. We do not see them, and it's only a color, and they have no words. The chorus in Peleas only sings in one scene in Act One, and it's a pictorial effect of the sailor's 
leaving on an unseen boat which had brought Melisande to live in this new place. Now, both Wagner and Debussy wrote continuous music. It's called through-composed music. It means it never stops. There are no so-called closed forms where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's all based on the scene or the act. The next point, Debussy is going to liberate himself even from Wagner. He doesn't want the voice being raised into the upper extremes except for moments of great intensity, intense emotion, love, passion, anger, violence. The normal discourse is in the middle register because that's where we speak. We only shout when there's a reason to shout. And Debussy felt all these operas, all these people are shouting all the time at the top of their lungs on these very high notes. It doesn't correspond with reality. And so he creates a language that is based on the delivery of the text in French as one would speak it with small inflections. Now, this was not his idea to begin with. The, the actual other great influence was not talked about a lot in terms of Debussy is Modus Mussorgsky, the great, great, great Russian composer who wanted to do the same thing. He wanted his music, his operas, his songs to reflect the spoken Russian language. And he broke away with everything that had preceded him. Now, Mussorgsky was already dead 10 years before Pelias was written. But there's no question that Debussy knew the score very well, and he refers to Mussorgsky in several of his writings, complimenting him. The greatest compliment, of course, is that he took the concepts of Mussorgsky and he applied them to French music. Now, he took something else from Mussorgsky, and that is the use of the arioso. What's the arioso? Arioso is a form of singing which is halfway between what we call recitative, which is basically all about the text, and arias, or songs where the melody is the main point, and the raising of the voice is the main point. So Arioso is right in the middle of that, and Mussorgsky used this style extensively, where there would be a melody, but only one that could go very quickly back to recitative, or could be intensified and turned into long melody. Debussy digested this idea from Mussorgsky, and he will use it. It's like a jaundice head that can turn in either direction. Arioso turns one second into more recitative, almost spoken text, and then can turn its head the other way and turn into melody. And Debussy will do it with such fluidity that it becomes a part of the amazing art. So Debussy's scenes are non-symmetric. There's a freedom of form, no structure as it would seem. Now I'm going to challenge you. We're going to hear why this opera is so different from most other operas and why it's so surprising. And why, if for anything, people who were great opera aficionados were always left a little quizzical. Here is Peleas finally telling Melisande that he loves her. Je t'aime. And she answers, je t'aime aussi. I love you also. But listen to the way they do that. You can barely hear her. And he can't hear her. He says, que te dis, Melisande? What did you say? 
So what was the world of French opera like when Debussy was in his formative years? Here's another Je t'aime, Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saëns. So you see, it's important to say it at the top of your lungs, but not to Debussy. Now we're getting a sense of the aesthetic. Let's go into the last characteristic that we can say came from Wagner, which is the use of the so-called light motif. That means a leading motive. Wagner used it systematically, explained it carefully, wanted his listeners to understand the structure of his operas. The leading motive could be about a person, a feeling, a place, an object, and he used them with increasing frequency and increasing sophistication as his compositional life proceeded. Now, Debussy actually mocked this at one point, but he wasn't above using what he had disdained. He referred to it as sort of a calling card. Every time a character showed up, we heard the leitmotif, how silly, how unsubtle. So this is the rebellious younger generation. He makes fun of the process, but he uses it when he needs to. And he created several motives, and he uses them. And the first one we're going to hear is the beginning of the opera. And I'm going to have you hear it on the piano so that you can clearly hear the motive. This is a motive that suggests a time long past. those few notes, he establishes a magical atmosphere. And he does it by using old harmony, so-called modal harmony, to psychologically bring us back in time. We've heard this type of aesthetic already with the so-called submerged cathedral. Where we feel almost motionless. And by so doing, seem to feel time as an entity in itself. So let's hear it again now. Four notes. Four notes repeated and varied. That is once upon a time. Now we get our second motive, which is the character of Golo. see it undulates, but it goes nowhere. Two notes. It has a static element. And then which in this context is very tranquil. But he's going to be able to take that context and make it a very active motive later in the opera. That's Colo. He's lost in the forest. Once upon a time is repeated. 
we hear Golo again, but with new harmony. The next motive is central. It's the motive of Melisande. Melisande is a highly mysterious soul. Golo discovers her at the side of a well in a forest. He attempts to talk to her, but she gives him evasive answers about everything. But he senses that she has just experienced a trauma. He invites her to come with him. She keeps her distance, but she goes with him. And then the story will ensue. Of course, he will marry her, eventually have a child by her. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is Melisande's motive. It's associated with the oboe very often. So here we are now in the forest. There's your first motive, primary motive. And now the magical sounds of the orchestra. Once upon a time, in a faraway land. Golo. Golo. Melisande. Now, Dante's Divine Comedy starts with its famous first line, translated, of course. Midway on the pathway of our life, I found myself in a dark forest, wherein the right way had been mistook. What on earth am I talking about Dante at this moment? Well, it's because our Golo comes onto the scene, and the first thing he says, Je ne pourrai plus sortir de cette forêt. I will not be able to ever get out of this forest. So he's in the same situation. If you're inclined, then, to read the rest of the Divine Comedy, you will see that Dante will go through the Inferno, he will go through Purgatorio, and he will go into Paradiso. And at the end, he and the universe is spiritually fulfilled, enlightened. I don't think Golan is going to end up with that. But they start in the same position, and that is the important point. I will never be able to get out of this forest. Who knows where that animal who I was chasing led me? I believed I had killed it. And now I've lost sight of it. 
The scene is structured around that feeling. And then, as Golot and Melisande try to leave the forest, we get a recapitulation of the first important motives. The night will be long and very cold. Come with me. Where are you going? I do not know. I, too, am lost. And we hear Colo's motive. And a new motive here. That motive seems to be involved with a feeling of eternity, but it may have something also much more material, as in the chateau, in the castle, where this family will all be living. Now, on the surface, it's just like every other opera. Melisande, this young woman, is going to fall in love with this young man. She's a soprano. He was originally meant to be a tenor, but then he got cast as a high baritone. So that changed, but the concept was the same. And as you remember, these loving people want to get together. Who's in the way? Well, Golo is the baritone. He's in the way. Well, what's the problem? Well, he married Melisande, so he is now the husband. Golo happens also to be the half-brother of Pelias. So it's a very complicated situation. But we've got that basic triangle there. It's a love triangle with jealousy, and it's going to function as a pretty standard bourgeois drama of here's the family, here's a problem, what's going to happen? Now, to that amazingly simple formulaic structure, we're going to have music that is all about symbolism, mysticism, transcendental. It's going to evoke feelings that are way beyond the actual events that you will be seeing. And there's the mystery, because we're going to be feeling that mystery through the music, where we're going to be able to follow a fairly straight line in the drama. So maybe we call this eternity, infinity, or just simply the chateau. I should also say that all motives have been given names. The names have been argued, disdained, taken back, replaced. You don't need to actually have an exact word, because if you had an exact word, there wouldn't need to be any music. So it's really all about the music and the feelings that it gives you. And then you can discuss, does it have an identity? Does it have a, not a meaning, but can we actually say what it is? Well, that's a question that's been going on for several centuries, and I'm not proposing an answer today. Here's another interesting motive. Focus on the trumpet that's coming now. You hear how the trumpet emerges from this marvelous sonority. Now, this is, seems to be associated with the concept of destiny, that everything is predestined, that the characters are living out their lives, but there was a destiny there and they could not escape from it. Golo and Melisande have been walking through the forest and it seems that it all leads to destiny. 
and then the destiny motive is heard. Now, shortly thereafter, we're going to meet the older characters. We're going to meet Arkel, who is the patriarch, the grandfather of Peleas and Golo. He is talking with the oldest woman in the castle. Her name is Genevieve. We do not actually know if Genevieve is his daughter or the wife of his son, the king. But we do know that she is the mother of Golo. So we've got already three generations. Arkel at the top, like an arch. All of these names are created fantasy names. They don't really exist. But does that sound a little bit like Archangel, Ark, something like that? Arkel is the great-grandfather. His son, whom we never see, is the king. That's important. And he is also blind. That is also important. Then comes the next generation, Golo, the elder, Peleas, the younger. That's the family structure. Now, there's already a little boy, and that little boy is the son of Golo with a previous wife whom we never know anything about. And at the very end of the opera, a little baby will be born to Melisande, whose father is Golo. Before Arkel speaks for the first time, we hear that destiny motive, and it's going to become a little bit associated with him because is he an older mystic, someone who has wisdom, who understands what nobody else understands? That's the traditional way of viewing him. But then Pierre Boulez, I'm paraphrasing, considered him an old fool. He says he makes these predictions and they never turn out the way he predicts them. So there are many ways to look at this very wonderful and complex grandfatherly character. There's destiny in the cellos. And here's Arkel. He says, I don't say anything. He's been posed a question, and like many sages, he listens to the story, but he doesn't make a judgment. He doesn't give directives. And then Destiny's motive appears again. Listen to the strings. Arkel speaks over the destiny motive. And what is he saying? Il n'arrive peut-être pas des événements inutiles. Paraphrase, that is if to say, there are no accidents. That perhaps everything that happens is destined to happen. That, to me, is one of the most magnificent phrases. And you see how the orchestra emerges and says something way beyond the capacity of the spoken word. Now we have a new, brighter, youthful, simple motive, and it's associated with Peleas himself. Now I want to differentiate between three different presentations of the text. First, recitative. The word takes precedence over the melodic line. It's declamatory.
simplicity and clarity. We can easily understand the text. As the letter recounts the first meeting, we hear the motive of long ago in the background. Very subtle, however. Now, halfway through that, we have the arioso style of which we spoke. Now there's a melody, and it can be in either the voice or the orchestra. And here's a good example. Now let's remember Melisande's there's Melisande's motive. And the orchestra can quote it when it wants, for instance, on a violin. There's no text. It just means she's in the ethos somewhere. So now we've had recitative and then a slightly more melodic form of the arioso, and now we're going to go to full vocality, a song, a melody, a line. There are very few in the opera. Melisande is going to sing a song. It's the only time that a song is excerpted. There's an amazing historic recording, and you'll get a chance to hear it now. Debussy at the piano, Mary Garden, the first Melisande from 1902. This is the evocative of the night. Melisande is in her little tower with her beautiful long hair. So now we've heard the three styles, and now we can go back to our motives. And then there's a third example. For instance, here it is with the oboe, and it has a variation underneath it. You hear sighing violins, which becomes a motive later on in the opera. In the second act, Peleas and Melisande very innocently find themselves at a well, very similar to the well from Act One. But now it's light and free and airy. We hear the flute. Peleas's motive. You hear this delicate, beautiful scene. You can feel the water, you can feel the light. And yet, there's a sensuous undertone. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I mentioned that the harp would be very important in this scene. First as a decoration, but at a very important moment, Melisande plays with her wedding ring that Goulot gave to her. She throws it in the air, catches it, throws it in the air, catches it. But at the moment that the harp shows us, we see that she misses it, and it goes deep into the well. This will be a very symbolic moment. There it is. It's fallen. It's fallen into the water. Where is it? You have a feeling something very dramatic has happened. We don't know what it is. It's so far away from us now. No, it's not the ring. It's not there anymore. It's lost. And she says, it's lost. Just the way Golot said, I also am lost. So this is the use of symbolism. These perfectly simple sentences take on meanings in the second and the third degree. The contrast of light and dark play a great role in this opera. Here's a scene where Peleas and Melisande return in the dark of night into a cave, supposedly to find the ring that was lost. But Melisande lied to Golot and said, well, I lost it in the cave. He says, go out right now and go into that cave. Well, they know they're not going to find the ring, but they have a very important experience there in the darkness. So they're in a cave looking for a ring that they know isn't there. Darkness, darkness, darkness. The moonlight comes out. Magic. But Melisande has seen something. Yes, I see them too, says Peleas. Let's go. Listen carefully to these two notes. There are three poor people who have fallen asleep. There's a famine in the country. Now, first of all, we know this kind of aesthetic. from the nocturnes. You listen to the violins. We've also heard this music in the beginning of the nocturnes, now on clarinets and bassoons. But something very similar, nuage, clouds, what do they mean? Do they mean anything? Interspersed with the oboe. Peleas and Melisande are gradually going to discover their love for each other. Now, we don't know when it started. We'll learn at the end of the opera that Melisande said, it started the first time I saw you. Peleas, very slowly, is only becoming conscious of this attraction. But there's Melisande in her little tower with his beautiful long hair. 
She's going to let that hair down. We're going to feel that sensuality. There she is with Peleas, and her hair becomes a symbol of that. Golo catches them, however, and he brings Peleas down to the cellars of the castle the next day to frighten him and to show him death. Remember that the interplay of dark and light is very important. This is the clearly dark. You've never come down here, Peleas. Yes, I was down here once. But that was long ago. Here's the stagnant water of which I spoke, says Golo. Now is the moment to mention that Debussy was fascinated with Edgar Allan Poe. And you can see the effects, the sense of horror. Think of the that side of Poe, which is so important. In fact, he wrote an opera, he didn't quite complete it, called The House of Usher, which is based on Edgar Allan Poe. But we see the influence of Poe in this scene, although Metrolink wrote the, wrote the scene. We can feel Debussy's attraction to the atmosphere of Edgar Allan Poe. Well, now they're going to come up from the cellars. And very slowly and gradually, they're going to see the light. And this metaphorically is the transition from darkness to light, from death to life. You hear the increasing light. Quickly change to La Mer, the first movement, which is the light going from dawn to midday. Now, before the end of Act 3, we are going to meet Golo's little son, whose name is Ignold. As Golo's jealousy increases, he's going to become increasingly violent. And we're going to see that come out here. He takes Ignold and he puts him on his shoulders and he says, I want you to look into the room during the night. Is Peleas there with Melisande? Yes, she's there, Papa. What are they doing? They're talking. Are they close to each other? In other words, he interrogates Ignold. Finally, Ignold is terrified himself. The act comes crashing down with a terrifying... Are they talking? No, Papa. He brusquely pulls Ignold away from the window. You recall a little earlier, I mentioned that Debussy didn't like to use the voice in its upper registers, except for moments that are very important. This is an important moment. Here we see Golo losing control of himself with his anger, and he turns violent. And he's going to do it again in the next scene where he's going to pull Melisande by the hair. Now he drags Melisande by her long hair. Finally, your hair 
serves a purpose. To the right, and then to the left. Uh, to the left, to the right. Absalom, he refers to the biblical character who had long hair. Forward, backwards, down to the ground. You see? I'm laughing like an old man. This terrible and terrifying scene of domestic violence. The opera is set, we don't know where, we don't know how many centuries ago, but the material of the passions of the human beings is as relevant today as it was at any time in history. This cruel scene evokes the sympathy and pity of old Arkell, who says, if I were God, I would have pity on the hearts of mankind. And after a short scene where we see Inyold looking at the sheep, probably going to slaughter, symbolic, of course, he can't find his ball that he was playing with, so he goes home. Peleus arrives, he goes to the fountain, the fountain that we saw at the beginning of Act Two. He's awaiting Melisande. She eventually comes, and for the first time, they express their mutual love. We heard this earlier. Now you're going to hear it in context. I love you. I also love you. Magic. So they're not going to shout about their love. It's tender. It's sensitive. But after a beautiful scene, it's reaching its climax. Now sensuality, give me your mouth. Yes, yes, yes. Love theme. Now they've raised their voices in the Italian manner. You remember this? So when Debussy wants it, he uses it but very rarely, sparingly, and it has all the more effect because of that. We continue until the scene reaches its climax. Now, one would assume that this would move into then a passionate scene of lovemaking, but it's interrupted by whom? Out of the shadows comes Golo. There's his motive. He takes his sword. Melisande runs away. Colo grasps Peleas. And kills him. Well, we're into the last act. Time has passed. After several weeks, several months, we don't know how much time. Melisande is dying. 
Elizonde is lying in her bed in the chateau. There's a doctor at hand. She has given birth. There's a baby girl. We feel the gentleness and the quiet of the scene. The light comes through the windows. And this quiet, gentle, lamenting theme will become the main motive of the last act. Tenderness. In this scene, Golo will beg forgiveness. Melisande will say, where's Peleas? She doesn't know that he's dead. Golo insists on knowing the truth. Were they lovers? Did they love each other? She said, yes, we loved each other. He said, no, no, I mean, did you love each other with a forbidden love? But she never answers. And she never answers anything. In fact, all of her answers are elliptical. We never learn anything about Melisande throughout the entire opera. Questions, answers that don't quite answer the question. So she remains a mystery. And part of the magic of this opera is that we're fascinated with her. We want to know who she is. But she resists any definition. Who is she? We don't know. Where did she come from? We don't know. How did she feel about this? We don't know. And yet, there she is, fascinating to Peleas, fascinating to Golo, fascinating to us. Golo, insistent, wanting to know the truth, but Melisande is too distant now. He's repentant, and yet he still cannot control his rage. And even in the face of Melisande's demise, he cannot help himself. This is the tragedy of a very complex character. Finally, Arkel comes in and says, you can no longer raise your voice. And he sings what is, in a sense, a eulogy before the fact. He says, listen, attention. You must speak softly now. And the elegy is in the orchestra. We should not worry her. The human soul is silence. The human soul likes to leave at its own pace. She suffers so timidly. The 
Oh, the sadness. Golo. But the sadness. The sadness of all that one sees. Finally, she will pass away in silence the way she lived. You hear the impressive stillness of the moment. Yes, it's sure. She's gone. didn't see anything. She went so fast. She went without saying anything. Now, not to shock you, but isn't this a far cry from the classic Italian soprano who dies singing a high note while the orchestra thunders fortissimo? I'm not saying it's bad. It isn't. I'm just saying it's different. Arkel takes the little baby in his arms and he says, now it's her turn. Now it's the turn of this little creature, showing us the cyclical nature of life. All tenderness. It's important that that baby live. Now, to replace Melisande, it's the turn of this little creature. Tickets for Peleus and Melisande are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.